So, tell me what happened. I was there. They crucified him. I can show you where they buried him. What difference does it make at this point? I understand. But just start from the beginning. Well, it was amazing. A few years back, a guy shows up making all kinds of crazy claims. He spent most of his time at the river. That's where I would go to listen. Then one afternoon, he just stops, mid-sentence points, and says, Look! So we all looked. Look, he said, the Lamb of God. <laughs> just what we all needed, right? A lamb? That's the first time I saw him. The lamb, that is. Jesus. You were with Jesus as well. I was for three years, right up until, well, yesterday. It was amazing. He was amazing. And the crowds, oh, I've never seen so many people in one place. And it was everywhere, everywhere we went, more crowds. They came to listen, they came to watch, some came to criticize, others to be healed. And he touched, he touched untouchable people and, and they were healed. I'm not sure I understand. He was healing people, but you seem offended. He told a man his sins were forgiven. People are so naive. Only God can forgive sin. His followers made mockery of the law, and he never lifted a finger to stop them. He would defend them. He would defend them and criticize us. Us! I was there the day he claimed to be greater than the temple. Then the rumors started. Rumors that he would actually destroy the temple. And the ignorant peasants he surrounded himself with believed him. Worse than peasants. Sinners. Tax gatherers. <laughs> Women. He told me about me. The part of me that that shames me. But I didn't feel shame that afternoon. Before that day, I can't remember when I haven't felt shame. But that day, that day I felt alive. They knew we were coming. Now by that time, they knew every move we made. We didn't know who to trust. But that, that didn't concern him. So, off we went into the jaws of the lion, Jerusalem. And the whole world was waiting for us. They lined the streets. The sound of their shouts was deafening. And I'll admit, it, it, it went to our heads. But 
not him. He seemed preoccupied. I, w I would say worried, but I'm not sure that he ever worried. And then things got strange. He made Passover all about him. You know, he, he said the bread was his body and, and the wine was his blood. And we were used to that kind of thing, but, but this seemed more unusual than normal, even for him. Then he announced a new covenant. We had no idea what that meant. And then he gave us a new command. And we, we certainly didn't need any more of those. So what was the problem? The problem? Jesus was the problem. The crowds loved him. The crowds flocked to him. And the crowds not only believed him, they were beginning to believe in him. That was a problem. So, we took care of it. You mean, you killed him? No, Rome killed him. Lucky for us, it was one of his own that led us to him. And once we had him, well, all the other peasants scattered, as we suspected they would. But let's be clear, we did not kill him. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I should have made him their king. I saw more courage, more integrity in those eyes than in the eyes of any of their high priests. They were jealous. Ask my wife. I tried to save him. But as soon as I mentioned king, we have no king but Caesar, they chanted. And in that moment, I realized I had no choice. And then, I crucified their king. But for the record, they are responsible, not me. It doesn't matter now. What matters now is that Passover is over. Things will settle down now. So, what do you do now? We hide. We wait. Didn't he say he'd be back? Yeah, yeah, he, uh... <sighs> he said a lot of things. More than you have room to write. So, do you think he'll be back? Back? I don't know. I don't think so. And on that first Easter, they didn't think so. And neither would we have. They thought that Jesus would do exactly what every other deceased person they had ever known to do. There was nobody outside the tomb that morning, you know, like Times Square on New Year's Eve. Five, four, three, two, Jesus! Nobody. 
Nobody was doing that. Nobody expected that. Even though that Jesus had talked about it many times in his public ministry, nobody was expecting that. I want you to see that this morning, that even when we look at the first visitors that came to the tomb early that first day of the week, that first Easter Sunday morning, the two women that were followers of Jesus, here's what happened. In Mark chapter 16, starting with verse 1, it says, And when the Sabbath was over, and the Sabbath was Saturday, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Now, they're getting ready to go anoint the body the next day, the first day of the week, Sunday. But they bought these spices on Saturday night. But it's important to know that on the day of the Sabbath, they did no work, as Jewish people do, and all these first followers of Jesus were Jewish. But on Friday, when Jesus was crucified, they were there when they watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and ask permission to take Jesus' body down off the cross because he was, in fact, dead, no heartbeat, no lungs were uh, breathing, no signs of life at all. And as a matter of fact, Pilate even had the body double-checked by one of the Roman soldiers to make sure. They, they were not going to make a mistake on this one. Make sure he's dead. And they let him bring the body down, and they went and put the body in this fresh tomb that no one had ever laid in. It was one that we're led to believe that Joseph of Arimathea had purchased, but it was a kind of tomb that someone really wealthy or someone very important would have been put in. And they laid his body in there and prepared it for burial. And all the women were getting ready to go and anoint the body on Sunday. But they were stunned. They were shocked. They couldn't believe what had happened, what they had witnessed. They believed that Jesus was a great teacher. They believed that Jesus was this miracle worker from God. But they also really believed and wanted to believe that he was the Messiah. But they assumed, at least at this point, they had gotten that part wrong. Because in their Jewish mind, they're thinking, how on earth would God allow the Messiah to be arrested by the Romans, beaten publicly, and then crucified publicly? That just, there was no space in their understanding of the Messiah for that scenario that played out before their very eyes. So there they are in shock. And here the first day of the week comes. It's very early on the first day of the week. This is Mark chapter 16, verse 2. Just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And in Luke's gospel account, we're told that they went inside and found that the tomb was empty. And their first assumption was not, oh my gosh, it's a miracle. Jesus is resurrected. No. You know what their first assumption was? Grave robbers. Somebody's stolen the body. And the reason we know that is because they run back to meet with the, the 12 disciples. They, they run back, well, 11. They run back and they tell uh, the, these men what they found. And we're, it's recorded for us in John chapter 20, verse 2. It says, this is what they said to the men. They said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they put him. His body's been stolen. We don't know where it went. And we're also told in Luke's gospel that the men were confused by this. They were skeptical. They didn't know what to think of what these women were telling us. As a matter of fact, this is what we're told. It says, but, when they, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like, let's say it together, seemed to them like nonsense. nonsense. That's right. 
Wow, a lot of faith there, guys. Wow, this is amazing. This is John, James, Peter. You know, these are, these are the men that we think, oh, incredible, giants of the faith, miracle workers. Amazing. They're not, they're, they, they, when they hear about the fact that Jesus is not in the tomb, they're like, this doesn't make any sense at all. This is kind of crazy. Now, let me tell you what this says to many of us in the room here. That if you have ever thought somewhere in the past, or maybe you brought this doubt and skepticism with you into the room, I just want to speak to it for a second. If you've ever thought, you know what? Jesus is an important man. He really is. He taught some amazing things. But I, when people start talking about the resurrection of Jesus, I kind of feel like that's nonsense. If you've ever felt that way, if you've ever thought that, let me just say you're in good company. Jesus' closest friends, his most dedicated disciples felt the exact same way on the first Easter, that's exactly how they felt. It's kind of remarkable. This is what happened. But here's what's so cool about what happens next, is that they didn't just sit there and sit in their skepticism and not do anything about it. They got up and went and checked out the evidence, especially Peter. We're told in verse 12, Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves and he went away. What did he, he went away doing what? He went away wondering to himself what had happened. What does this even mean? This is so confusing. I don't know what to make of all of this. And to me, ladies and gentlemen, I love this about the gospel writers, about the record historical accuracy of the New Testament. And many historians say this actually speaks to the accuracy and the validity of this record that we have in the New Testament in these four gospel writers. Because they show things like the skepticism, the unbelief, and the doubt of these folks that were the spokeswomen, men and women later, of this movement called Christianity. But on the front end, they weren't convinced he was raised from the dead. They were not convinced of a resurrection. They were trying to figure out what was going on, and they were scared. That night, the first Easter, that night, we're told that they were huddled together. This is John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked, bar the door, lock it, latch it, and they huddled together in fear of the Jewish leaders. They were scared because what? The Jewish leaders had just executed their leader. Who did they think was next? Them. They're coming after us. They're going to execute everyone. They were all going to get crucified. They were scared to death. And there in that room, huddled together, afraid, confused, wondering what's going on, Jesus pays them a visit. And we're told he didn't even use the door. He just shows up. Like, it's kind of amazing. We're told in Luke chapter 24, they were startled and frightened, thinking they, had, they saw, uh, let's say it again, they saw a ghost <laughs> again. Wrap your head around this. These are the disciples who had lived every day with Jesus for three years, heard him talk about resurrection over and over and over, and they're thinking, they're seeing, they don't think, oh, great, resurrected Jesus. I knew it. You guys doubted. I knew it. Nobody does that. They're thinking, a ghost, right? That's a monster faith right there. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, let's say it together, why do doubts rise in your minds? And what Jesus does next is beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so sympathetic and so compassionate 
to their need in the moment. He, this is what he says. He says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And then he says, do you have any fish? Let me eat. He eats fish right in front of him. He shows them, I'm not a ghost, guys. Come touch and feel. Come and see the evidence to support that there was an actual historical resurrection, and I'm him, and it's been done, and I'm here now. He wanted them to have no doubt. And later, Luke writes for us in the Acts of the Apostles, the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3. Luke tells us this. He says, after his suffering, after the crucifixion, he presented himself to them and gave many, let's say it together, many convincing proofs that he was alive. He was convincing them. He was proving to them, I did raise from the dead. Look, here I am. How would I be here if I hadn't raised from the dead? I mean, anybody got any questions? How can I help you get over this hump, over this disbelief, over this wondering, frustration and questioning? How do I help you? And he appeared to them over a period of 40 days. Every single day he appears to them. And he spoke about the kingdom of God. And these people, ladies and gentlemen, were witnesses to this event that triggered a movement that became Christianity that has changed the world forever. But here's what I want you to get from what I'm sharing with you right here. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what created Christianity. The Bible didn't create Christianity. Some people coming together to create a denomination did not create Christianity. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that launched the church. There were no Christians before Jesus resurrected. There were followers. That's what disciple means, follower, pupil, learner. But there were no Christians, no one who had placed faith in a resurrected Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. There was no gift of salvation yet because Jesus hadn't done it yet. And now that he's resurrected, I want you to see that people began to believe in great numbers. And all of this happened at a time when nobody expected nobody. Okay? Did you follow that? Nobody expected nobody. Nobody was looking for that. I mean, even the closest people that you would think, oh, they absolutely believed. They didn't. They were questioning the whole time until Jesus showed up, answered their questions, confirmed their suspicions. Yes, it is me. Absolutely. I'm up walking around. And I want you to know today that there are convincing proofs right down to this day that Jesus' resurrection is a historical fact and I want to share with you five, five accepted historical facts about the resurrection of Jesus that are, both by, that are accepted by both Christians and non-Christian scholars. And these are things that both Christian and non-Christian scholars would say this is historically accurate based on everything that we have, the vast majority of them saying these are factual, you can trust them, they're accurate. So let's go through them. Here's the first one, Jesus actually Dead, was actually dead. He actually died, right? And anybody who says, oh, well, the Romans, they just messed up and they didn't really kill him, you know? He just got kind of hurt real bad and then he was just sort of, he was just injured and then he kind of faked it. And anybody who says that, anybody who says that has, does not have a good grasp on Roman culture. They don't understand historically what Romans were all about. 
because they were professional executors. They didn't invent the crucifixion. They just perfected it. They were really, really good at killing people, okay? Really good. Maybe some of the best there ever were, ever. As a matter of fact, to say, well, maybe one day the Romans just forgot how to kill people. It's kind of like saying, well, one day the Ford Motor Company forgot how to make a car, right? Like, this is what they do. They don't forget how to do this. This is what they do. As a matter of fact, the soldiers that were charged with the crucifixion knew that their life was on the line if they didn't, in fact, kill whoever it was that they were to crucify. No question about it. Number two, second fact, that Jesus' tomb was, in fact, empty. So much so, historians would say, and this is one of the biggest pieces of evidence, so much so that the early Christians quickly lost track of even where it was. You know why? Because to them, that was totally irrelevant. Who cares where he laid down for three days? He's up walking around. You want to meet him, right? Like, let me introduce you to the risen Jesus. I don't want to show you where he laid, where he was dead. He's alive, my goodness, and even today, if you go to the Holy Lands, the place that you're taken as the tomb of Jesus, we still don't know, historically speaking, geographically speaking, we don't know if for sure if that's the place. There's no actual confidence in that. You know why? Because those early Christians could not have cared less about that, and they lost track of it. And, and, and what is more is that both the Roman government and the Jewish leadership, the, the high council of the Jewish people, they wanted to find that body of Jesus. Where was he laid? Where is he dead? Because people are talking about he's up walking around. Let's go find that body. And if they, believe me, you, if they could have exhumed that body, strung it up somewhere publicly and said, here's your Messiah, here's your Savior, dead, just like your faith, just like your Christian movement, it is over. And it would have been if they could have done that but they couldn't produce a body. Although they did find Jesus, they just wanted to leave him alone. Okay, he is alive. We just need to, <laughs> we're going to leave Jesus alone now. He's resurrected. I think we've already killed him once, so we're just going to leave him alone. They, it was a, a really awkward kind of situation where Jesus wasn't threatened anymore after that. But he, his tomb was empty, and that's a widely accepted historical fact. Number three is that Jesus' disciples were convinced that he resurrected. Now imagine for just a moment, put yourself in their shoes and their sandals for just a moment, okay? And you watch somebody who is a close, dear friend of yours, you watch them die. You watch them slowly bleed to death hanging on a cross. No life left no breath in their lungs, no heartbeat, nothing. And you slowly, one by one, you leave. And days go by. Three days later, you see a post-mortem raised body that was them. And they're completely healed. They're up walking around, have scars to prove that it was them who died, but now they're fully and completely restored and healed with a glorified body. And their disciples were so convinced that it was Jesus that they, and don't miss this, they were willing to die for that fact. This is extraordinary. This is absolutely astonishing. Because people don't die for things that are a hoax. They don't die to try to uphold a story they're trying to get people to believe, but it's just maybe a few crazy people do, but not hundreds and even thousands wind up doing this. 
It's, it's amazing that the disciples truly were convinced. Number four is that it went against the Jewish teaching about the resurrection. All these early Christians were all Jews. They'd all grown up in Jewish homes and been taught by Jewish rabbis. But here's what we understand about Jewish culture and what they taught. They did teach about a resurrection that happened at the end of the world and after which you were, it was decided whether you go to heaven or hell. That's what they believed. That's what they taught. Nobody taught that there was going to be a resurrection by one man in the middle of history. Nobody was teaching that. That came completely out of the blue. That was not something they were taught. It was something that they witnessed, and it completely changed everything. Number five is it changed the way they lived and the way they worshiped. And one of the first things that happened is that all these Jewish people stopped worshiping on Saturday, the Sabbath, and began to worship on Sunday. You know why? Because Sunday was the day that Jesus resurrected. That's right. Not a trick question. I'm talking about the resurrection today. Okay, it's Easter, right? <laughs> yes, he resurrected. So in honor of Jesus, let's worship on Sunday. Now, they weren't commanded to do that. There's no like law in the Bible that says they just chose to do that out of honor for Jesus. And we still do that. That's what we're doing today, right? We come together. And so this is really fascinating, but it wasn't just worshiping on Sundays. It was fascinating things like they began to pray in the name of Jesus. They began to pray to Jesus. They began to worship Jesus began to worship the name of Jesus as God incarnate, as God in the flesh, that he was and is the son of the living God, and he was alive and resurrected and changing their life. And they were praying and worshiping in such a way that was truly remarkable. And then people, more and more people began to follow in this faith where they were claiming a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, not adhering to a religion or I'm going to, now I believe this set of beliefs. That's not what it was. It was a personal encounter, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ which meant that they were claiming my sins were forgiven by him. He's given me new life, and now he is the leader of my life. He is my Lord. And it wasn't just a few. It started happening by the thousands and thousands. And historians would say that over the book of Acts of the apostles, from chapter 1 to 28, which was about a 30-year span, the number of believers went from 150 in the upper room, and historians would say estimated to a little over a quarter of a million, 250,000 Christians in 30 years. It arguably one of the most dangerous times in all of history to be a Christian, where there was widespread persecution. Their bodies were lighting the Colosseum for the Romans. Their bodies were being fed to the lions publicly. They were being beaten. They were being killed over and over and over in every corner of the world. It, it just didn't make sense unless there was evidence. And these people were not claiming a religion. They were claiming a relationship with a man who claimed to be the son of God, who predicted his own death and resurrection and then pulled it off publicly. He pulled it off, and everything he said about himself came to pass. And here's the thing that skeptics, historians, sociologists struggle with. How do you explain a shift in humanity of that magnitude without massive evidence, eyewitnesses, 
everywhere. This is why today, New Testament scholars, both Christian and non-Christian alike, say these facts substantiate, prove that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. Now, what you do with that fact is up to you. It's a historical fact. And that later that night, on the first Easter, when Jesus is among the disciples, he, he shares something else that's really powerful with them. He reveals that he has fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies about himself. That the Jews would have been very um, aware of all of these prophecies of the coming Messiah. They had been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah to come and fulfill these things. And here's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 44. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be, let's say together, must be fulfilled that is written about the law of Moses, written about me in the law of Moses, the first, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Old Testament, the prophets, and the Psalms. All of those prophetic statements had to be fulfilled about me. You need to know that. And hopefully somebody was paying attention that they all point to me, Jesus is saying. Now what's interesting is since that moment, there's been a lot of research that's been done about these Old Testament prophetic statements about Jesus, and there have been identified over 300 of these prophetic statements. And what's staggering is that when you begin to think about the probability of any one person being able to fulfill all of those statements, it becomes, the probability becomes just almost mind-boggling, staggering, hard to even believe it's in the realm of possibility. As a matter of fact, Dr. Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, he talks about that even if Jesus fulfilled eight, right? He filled all of them, but just fulfilling eight of the prophecies about Jesus, he said it's, the probability is, is roughly one um, one in 100 quadrillion, okay? Now, I know when you look at a number like that, you're like, wow, that looks really big. I have no idea what to do with that number. He said, well, so here's, here's a good way to, th to think about it, how he could illustrate it. If you took the state of Texas, I'm so glad he picked that state, all right? He said, if you take the state of Texas and you bury two feet high, you, you pile two feet high, silver dollars all across the state of Texas. And you take one silver dollar and you mark it so that it's different from all the others. And you throw it way out there, you stir them all up, right? Mix them all up real, real good. And then you get one really enthusiastic volunteer and you say, okay, you can travel as far as you want to in any direction all across the state of Texas, but you can only bend over and pick up one coin. And when you bend over and pick up, you must pick up the one marked coin coin. Blindfolded, by the way, he said. Blindfolded. That is the same probability of getting just eight of the prophecies right. When you move up to 48, you're talking about one times 10 to the 157th power. It's this number right here. I don't even know what you do with that number right there. That's just 48 of the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 of them. At some point, you say the probability is so absolutely impossible, the only way to explain it is divine intervention, that God was involved, God aligned the stars and made this happen. Jesus was the only one that could and did fulfill all the prophecies about 
the Messiah. And Jesus goes on to say this in verse 46, in that, that same conversation. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his, let's say it together, in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He's not saying, this is just information for you to know. This is something for you to experience, something for you to witness, something for you to see and to hear and to feel and to touch and to know. And this is so powerful because when we begin to understand the resurrection as an actual historical event, it begins to explain for us things like, it explains things like the disciples' sudden bold faith. They go from huddling in an upper room, scared to death, they're going to be arrested and executed, to going out in the streets of the very city where their Lord Jesus was crucified and began to proclaim publicly, he's been risen from the dead and you can have faith in him and he can be your Lord and Savior. And people by the thousands and thousands were coming to faith in Jesus in the very town where if there had been evidence to disprove them, they would have done it. But people knew the evidence was for the resurrection, not against it. And they began to believe in such large numbers that the Sanhedrin, the high council of the Jews, brought together Peter and John and threatened them and said, why do you keep doing this? You know this is going to cause trouble for you. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, this is Peter speaking. Now, let me just say this before. You understand, Peter's story, man, he was all over the map. He believed, and then he unbelieved, and then he denied he ever believed, and then he re-believed later. Like, if you know his story, if you've ever struggled with faith, you ought to feel like you're in good company with Peter because he's been all over the map. And now Peter is bold as a lion. The, the very guys that, that wound up orchestrating the death of Jesus, he's speaking to them right now. And here's what he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other, let's say it together, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. And they said, listen, you know if you keep this up, you're going to get the same fate that Jesus did. And he says, that doesn't scare me. I saw Jesus resurrect. And here's what's amazing about Peter. Peter is not showing us something that he was taught as a child. He's showing us something that he witnessed as an adult, as a man, that he experienced. He was an eyewitness to this. And when they threatened his life, here's what he said in verse 20, and I love this. If you'd read these highlighted words with me, he says, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Threaten us all you want to, but we're not going to stop talking about what we've seen and heard, what we've witnessed, what is undeniable to us. We will give our life. We will die for this. We will gladly die for this because it is truth. It's God's truth that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And when Jesus point blank asked Peter one time, who do you say that I am? Because he was telling him, Jesus, all these people have different misunderstandings about who you are. But he says, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And he was right. And he saw it proved to him over and over that Jesus, in fact, is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. He is worthy of our service, our love, and our worship. 
He is resurrected, resurrected from the dead, and we join together today, ladies and gentlemen, with about 2.4 billion Christians worldwide today who celebrate the name of Jesus because they placed faith in it for eternal life with God forever. And like 20 different times in the New Testament, we're told, promise, you shall be raised with Christ. You shall be raised as Jesus did. You will be resurrected. You will be given new life, eternal life, as you saw in Jesus. His resurrection is our confidence of our eternal life. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity. There is no faith in Jesus. He's the one that made that happen. And I remember as a young man sitting in a service just like this for the first time, and I hope this is happening for some of you, beginning to connect with this message that this is for Will. This is for me. That Jesus loved me. He died for me. He resurrected in part for me so that I could be forgiven of my sins. I remember my eyes filling up with tears and just thinking, God, you are willing to endure all of that to save me from the consequences of my sin? I called out on the name of Jesus. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Give me your new life and be the Lord of my life today. I called out on his name because he had called mine. He's calling some of yours today. He called me out of that grave, that dead place, spiritually dead place that I was coming from, and I stepped out of the spiritual darkness and into the glorious light and day that Jesus provides. And today, you can do the exact same thing. And I want to ask you today that in this application prayer, would you just be open to be willing to pray something like this to Jesus. For some of you, it's beginning that relationship with Jesus, simply saying, Jesus, it's on your name because of your resurrection that I place my trust today. I ask you to forgive my sins and lead my life from now on. And then for those of you who are believers today, you've been through some difficult times. You've been through some times of doubt, confusion, wondering, wandering, hurt, you don't know what to do with parts of your life, but I want to encourage you on this last statement that you would be willing to give your life completely to him this Easter. God, I've been withholding because I've been hurt. I'm scared. I'm frustrated. I'm mad. I've been holding back a relationship, some personal stuff that I shouldn't be doing, some places I'm going on the internet, some things that I'm flirting with that I shouldn't be that are dangerous, I know. I don't want to confront it. I don't want people to ask me about it. I don't want to have to deal with it. But today's the day to give your life completely to him. Would you be willing to do that today? He just wants to draw you close to him so he can bless you. He wants to draw you close to him so that he can be the thing that you are longing. You're longing for and yearning for something in this world that is a counterfeit. It'll never satisfy. Only Jesus can. And today could be the day where you finally find the real satisfaction of your soul that's found in Jesus alone. And right now, if you would, let's bow together in prayer. And I ask that wherever you are spiritually right now at this moment, that you would be open to what God wants to do next. Lord Jesus, we come before you right now. I ask, dear God, for every person across this room that knows that you're telling them it's time to surrender something to me. 
to completely give yourself over to me right now. Would you be willing to do that right where you sit? You know there's something you've been withholding and it's time to give it over, to fully surrender it. Would you just lift your hand right now? Just say, Will, I know there's something I need to give over and I'm giving it over right now. I'm praying, Jesus, here it is. I'm tired of holding this out. I'm, I'm tired of trying to figure this out myself. It's frustrating. It's just like a thorn in my flesh. It's gnawing at me over and over and over and I can't get any satisfaction, no peace over this thing. And Jesus says, I am the Prince of Peace. I've got your back. Bring it to me. Surrender it right now. Give it to him right now in prayer. Jesus, here it is. Here's this relationship. Here are these kids. Here's this financial situation. Here's my future. Here's all my agony, frustration, heartbreak, times where I felt like it shouldn't be like this. It shouldn't have turned out like this. I, I don't know why I feel like this. What, what, what are you doing to me, God? All those moments, would you just lay them at his feet right now? I give them all to you, Jesus. I surrender it all completely. I trust you that you can make beauty out of ashes starting today. You specialize in resurrections. May you resurrect some people's lives today. Let me put your hands down. Lord, I pray right now for those across this room that their heart beat right now, their desire is to begin a relationship with you, God, right here, right now. You know who you are. Would you just pray right where you sit? And just pray straight to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm asking you to forgive all my sin. That when you died on the cross and resurrected from the dead to pay for all sin, you made that available to me. And if I'll place my faith in you, I get to be forgiven too. So today, I place my faith in you, Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin. Please forgive my sin. Give me new life in you, Jesus and be the leader of my life from this day forward. If right now you're asking Jesus to forgive your sin, give you new life, and be the leader of your life going forward, would you just lift your hand as an act of faith? I just want to pray for you. Anybody here, God bless you, right over here. Anybody else giving it all over to Jesus, surrendering it all to him today? God bless you. Right there, thank you so much. Anybody else? God, thank you so much for how you're touching lives, moving on people's hearts today. I pray, God, that we would leave here bold, God, changed. May your Holy Spirit use us to live out these lives that you resurrected to give us. We praise you, and we pray it all in the amazing name of Jesus. Amen. Softly and tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling for you and for me.
次。